0: You're listening to SequelCast2 and Friends, a proud part of the Lit Podcast Network. This is a vintage episode of SequelCast2 and Friends. Audio quality may not be up to current standards. We apologize for the nastier audio artifacts.
1: Uh, we could have had J and L doing this whole mission, that would have been fantastic but instead L gets completely dropped with some really shitty exposition oh she decided to go back to working in the morgue, really?
0: After the credits roll there's always more to tell especially when the video sales are doing really well from Shock Treatment to Jason X to Police Academy 6 this is Sequel Count Cal- Unsurpassed that following a franchise until the bitter end. This is SequelCast and your host of us that I informed you that the show will now begin. What? I'm the light? No. No
1: way. You have a planet to save, Laura.
0: You've got me confused with somebody else. I work part-time at a pizzeria. Two
1: days ago, I was running a post office in Truville, Mass. You are who you are. Laura. You are the light, the leader of your
0: people, their spirit and of your people, their spirit and their hope. The power is within you to save a planet. I protected you until it was your time. Your time is now.
1: <laughs> you are going to save the world. No, I can't be. I'm- you know things before they happen. I'm a Libra.
0: You're Zarthan. When you get sad, it always seems to rain.
1: Well, lots of people get sad when it rains.
0: It rains because you're sad, baby. Hello, and welcome to the Sequel Cast. The Sequel Cast is a show that talks about movies in a franchise, one film at a time. We're in the middle of looking at the Men in Black trilogy, with uh, Men in Black Two is what we're focusing on this particular episode. I'm Matt. With me is Thresher. You can check out our website at sequelcast.com or uh, we also have uh, conversations going on on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash sequelcast. And uh, our theme song is written and composed by Mark with a C. You can check out his uh, music at com, And uh, we're also on Stitcher. Listen to us on Stitcher. And if you sign up for Stitcher at stitcher.com slash sequelcast, you can have a chance to win $100. Uh, Stitcher is an app for your computer, smartphones, Macintosh, whatever you have, and it lets you listen to podcasts on-the-go streaming so you don't have to wait forever for a big download. And SequelCast is on there, along with a lot of other popular shows. So, uh, yeah, so we're talking about Men in Black 2. Um, let's look at some stats for Men in Black 2, shall we? Oh, yes, let's. So it's it's been a bit of time between all these different Men in Black sequels. The original Men in Black came out in 97, Men in Black 2 came out five years later in 2002. Uh, Men in Black 2, directed by Barry Sonnenfeld, like the original. Screenplay by Robert Gordon and Barry Finaro, based off a story by Robert Gordon. Stars Tommy Lee Jones, Will Smith. Uh, The bad guy this time is Laura Flynn Boyle and Johnny Knoxville. Romantic interest is Rosario Dawson. And uh, music again by Danny Elfman. This time the cinematographer is Greg Gardiner. And, um, off a budget of $140 million, it made $440 million worldwide, according to Box Office Mojo. So, uh, this was less successful than the first one, but still made quite a bit of money. Um, do you remember when you saw Men in Black 2 in the Theater Thrasher? Were you at SCAD then?
1: Uh, yeah, I uh, believe we were both at the Savannah College of Art and Design at the time. I,
0: I, I didn't start SCAD until fall of 2002. Oh, okay. is when I transferred in. So this was just before the summer before, but, um, but so in men in black two, were you still, in, uh, in school or were you at home for the summer?
1: Oh no, no. After, after my first year, I decided to stay in Savannah full time and take summer courses. So I, there was, uh, I I, there was not a time when I was not studying up until I graduated
0: after that. I see. So, um, did you see men in black two by yourself in theaters with friends? Uh, you know, oh, actually,
1: no. Uh, during uh, during a, a brief spring break, I actually saw it with my family in the Outer Banks. We have a get together out there every year, and you know we all try to see a movie together. And this just happened to be the movie we saw.
0: Like in Duck, North Carolina, or actually it's in Nags Head. Oh, oh, okay. There's so many of those different uh, stuff out there. It's a beautiful
1: p- part of the country, though.
0: Yeah, and not um, not as terribly crowded as something like Panama City, in Florida that's for sure um, yeah Men in Black 2 I saw in the summer I was dating a girl not very at least on my end it was not very seriously and we saw Men in Black 2 and um, this girl's mom was going on and on about how great it was and I, I came in with pretty high expectations Will Smith was still pretty, uh, pretty hot at the time and uh, as far as popularity goes and I walked out of Men in Black Two just really deflated and disappointed, and like, oh, I, I spent eight dollars on that because it cost eight dollars to see a movie ten years ago instead of what is it, fifteen to see a movie in three D now. So you got uh, off lucky. Did I? Oh yeah. Now What do you mean?
1: Well, as I said, uh, as I said uh, uh, last uh, last week's episode, this is my least favorite sequel of all time. If I can quote Roger Ebert, I hated this movie. I hated this movie. I hated, hated, hated this movie.
0: Well, I think we, we before we talk about this, we should point out uh, the movies that Will Smith and Tommy Lee Jones were making before Men in Black Two came out. They were still on a somewhat successful role, although overall, you know, not less financially successful after that first Men in Black. Tommy Lee Jones made U.S. Marshals, which was a sequel to um, The Fugitive, the that a lot of people don't know about. Uh, that's, that's middling. It's not so great. Uh, he, he did a voice in Small Soldiers, was in Double Jeopardy, a pretty high-profile movie with Ashley Judd, Rules of Engagement, Space Cowboys. So he was in some sort of higher-profile um, dramas and things. And Will Smith, after the original Men in Black, was in Enemy of the State, which I thought was an excellent sort of techno-thriller. Uh, Wild Wild West, um, also directed by Barry Sonnenfeld, based on the TV show. Uh, I haven't seen, but I've heard it's not so great.
1: It, it's not that great It's yeah. it's it it could have been the greatest steampunk spectacle ever filmed but it completely squandered its own premise
0: and he, he kind of did a big dramatic film with uh, Ali in 2001 where he played Muhammad Ali and I saw that one I, I recall it w- was pretty good wasn't blown away by it but um, solid performances all around I thought so they both were, Will Smith in particular was kind of in need of a big box office hit So we went back to the well for Men in Black 2. and Men in Black 2, they were trying to make for a while. Uh, Tommy Lee Jones did not want to do this. They had to pay him a lot of money. Will Smith, they obviously had to pay a lot of money. And, um, uh, you know, the the problem with the sequel with Men in Black, even though it's not a comic book movie exactly, it still has the same issue where the first movie, half of it is an origin story. And so with the sequel uh, to these sort of things, the advantage is you can run on and do, it kind of hit the ground running as far as the plot goes
1: that's what you can do and what you yes. should do, but instead they give us another origin story
0: for Tommy Lee Jones,
1: but it's a double origin story because it's a character that we, that already got an origin.
0: Well, not only that, I, I'm really bothered by the beginning of this movie. It's this campy sort of in the style of, uh, Oh what TV show is it? In I search can't, I'm of. not thinking. Yeah. In search of, but it's hosted by Peter Graves. Who was in movies like Airplane? And I believe he hosted a biography on A and E for uh, several years. Uh, yes, he did. This is Peter Graves, and I like movies this is with gladiators. Peter
1: Graves, and you're watching
0: Biography on A. You A&E? like movies with gladiators, Tommy? <laughs> Are these pants on too tight? No. Um. And anyway, it's this campy sort of origin story about these aliens that supposedly visited Earth, and the Men in Black were there, and it sets up this backstory that doesn't truly come into play until halfway through the film when will smith and uh tommy lee jones aka agent j and k see this footage and it made me wonder couldn't they have saved this actual footage for when they see this reenactment or see this videotape later in the film instead of blowing this backstory that doesn't go into effect
1: no i think i think i think that's i think that's what happened is that they filmed this for it for inclusion in the film in the middle of the film but it's the only legitimately laugh out loud party p- party it's the only legitimate laugh out loud <laughs> segment of the film it is it is at least 3 times better than any other moment in the film it is so good i think that they took it and front-loaded the whole thing, put the whole thing at the beginning of the film just to get some goodwill from the audience, which it proceeds to squander. I, I do fully believe that that segment was never meant to be the beginning of the film. It was just yeah. The to me, only it way feels make like it might have been something.
0: To me, it feels like it might have been something having to do with test screenings. Maybe there's people that might have seen the test screenings and been like, "I don't really get the plot," so they kind of move this to the beginning. I don't know that, but that's just a guess. It sort of feels that way. There's
1: no plot to get. Um, it, it, this movie yeah, does Thrasher, a service to the very notion of MacGuffins.
0: I have to tell you one thing, Thrasher. Yes. It uh. It doesn't. It doesn't rain when you cry. It cry. Oh, I got that backwards. Damn it. <laughs> <laughs> How does that line go that Tommy Lee Jones has at the very end? I, I'll, I'll I'll look it up. Keep on going.
1: I have nothing but contempt for every line in this film, so I have no idea. <laughs>
0: In the beginning but, you get a lot of sequences uh, where Tommy Lee Jones isn't the uh isn't back as the partner. And I almost thought you might as well leave Tommy Ely Jones out of this movie if he's in it for so little in the beginning. Well, you because could. you get funny things with Patrick Warburton as an agent and then later on you get Frank the Pug as a as a co-star.
1: Well, no, you could have completely left Tommy Lee Jones out of here especially since uh the the end of the first film is firmly established Agent L. So we could have had uh, we could have had yeah. Jay and L doing this whole mission. That would have been fantastic. But instead, L gets completely dropped with some really shitty exposition. Oh, she decided to go back to working in the morgue. Really? Really? An agent that competent and dedicated who's in, in so deep by the end of the first film just decides to pack it in and go back to her do-nothing life in the morgue? Bullshit! I wanted to see—I wanted to see a good, strong woman in black in this film, and that is not what I got. So right then and there, it completely betrayed my expectations. Given the setup at the end of the first film,
0: I mean, to its credit, it introduces an interesting notion where Will, Smith, since uh, Will Smith doesn't have Tammy Jones as a partner, he just keeps on um, neuralizing all the partners he's assigned to him just out of impatience, or maybe because he misses Tommy Lee Jones so much. And it's mentioned—it's a throwaway line of dialogue. They don't really get into that. But it would have been nice to see Leah ferentino in, in a cameo. She was
1: a great character.
0: Yes. Had, had some sass to her. Uh, it was, was pretty tough. She's not the cream puff that uh, Rosario Dawson is in this film. Mm. And I think she's fine as an actress. I... Th- I've never quite been blown away by her or anything, but uh Yeah, I think she's pretty good in the Oliver Stone film Alexander, starring Colin Farrell about the Alexander the Great. Um But I mean I Men in Black 2 at I don't know, it it feels like a shittier remake of the first one in a lot of ways. Except the whole gimmick with this is now Will Smith has to teach Tommy Lee Jones how to do stuff because he's been neuralized. But he has to be in a D super neuralizer. I don't know. This one feels like a cartoon, and the first one had a little bit of weight to it. Had a little bit of fun. I don't know. Am I making sense here?
1: Yeah, well, th- this whole movie is just loaded with dumb gags. Like when they, like when they get uh, Tommy Lee Jones into MIB headquarters and they want to do the process to restore his memory, and headquarters gets compromised and everybody has to flee. What's their emergency evacuation system being flushed down a giant <laughs> toilet? Then, later on, when they're attacked by alien gangsters in Jeeb's shop, you know, you you get two of the stupidest alien biology gags ever. One being, you look like crap. Well, no, that guy looks like crap. And there's an alien literally made of feces. And then in the middle of the fight, he's got a weak spot. He's a chinian. And there's a goddamn (laughs) alien with goddamn testicles under its mouth its own testicles under its mouth, mind you. So you just punch it in the... How the fuck does something like that evolve?
0: So he can lick himself for a good time. I don't know. I agree. That scene in particular is very stupid, but not only that, if we back up the bad guy in this, uh, Lur—was uh, it Serlina? Serlina. Yeah, yeah Serlina, played by Laura Flynn Boyle of Twin Peaks fame. Um, and Laura Flynn Boyle is, is pretty. She looks uh, almost like anorexically thin in this movie, I thought. And seems to have had a lot of plastic surgery done. I think that's a safe thing to say, allegedly. And uh, she's not scary or threatening or frightening. She's just skinny and has big uh, breasts that may or may not be fake.
1: Yeah, it's and the, frankly,
0: Vincent D'Onofrio uh, as the, the bug monster in the first one had a weird gait, had all these yeah. gun, you know, had a weird way of speaking, was kind of frightening. I don't know. It looked like something out of the Twilight Zone movie. And Laura Flynn Boyle as Selena just acts like a video game character. She just makes these like vines go everywhere, and okay, I guess she can cause a lot of damage, but that's not threatening.
1: Well, you know, she she has the same gravitas as a as a sexy assassin character. I mean, she. She she honestly plays it she plays it like she would be the second banana to a real villainous mastermind when she should be the villainous mastermind. So she gets a sidekick that's even more pathetic than she is in the form of Johnny Knoxville, who's just a wisecracking jackass with two heads for some reason.
0: Yeah, and, and the effect with two heads, maybe they didn't quite have the technology at the time, it doesn't well, hold up very well. It, well, it's not that it's a bad...
1: Be- a bad effect it's just they don't do anything with it there is no no st- element of the story is served by him having two heads you know what what the fuck kind of alien is he supposed to be
0: well i mean unlike say uh, the character of Zephyr biebelbrox in the hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy movie and, and those books where he has a second head but the head has a purpose in the plot It's sort of like uh, that character unhinged or whatever
1: well, no, that was in the movie. In, in the book, uh, right. uh, he has two heads because it's part of the 2000 AD over-the-top uh, nature of British space opera that, that uh, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy was drawing from and commenting on. So it's And really in, all the, about in the BBC miniseries
0: the of Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, the head just sits there and goes, Ugh.
1: Well, that's because they didn't have super animatronics back in the uh, no. late 70s, early 80s. <laughs>
0: If it's a sci-fi show on the BBC, it must be filmed in a quarry. Well, yeah, but those
1: are good quarries. Top-quality quarries.
0: Top-quality pebbles in there, yeah. Um, (laughs) Rock formations for the wind. Um, Yeah, Men in Black 2 is what we're here to talk about. Well, actually,
1: can I I comment about something else near the beginning of the film?
0: Yeah, help yourself.
1: After we get the cheesy 1970s paranormal documentary thing about the Men in Black... Uh, we then get an extended sequence of this spaceship traveling through space, just blowing the fuck out of planets. Which, I got bored with the planet exploit, Like, one planet explosion is horrifying. Two is terrifying. Once you have more than that, it starts to get boring and pointless. And it all is a build-up to a really sh- shitty joke of the spaceship turning out to be really, really tiny. And that shitty joke about big, small, big, small, keeps coming up in this film and just gets worse and worse each time. It doesn't even work as a theme.
0: Yeah, and I don't know. I mean, the only thing I liked about the opening credits was the music, which is pretty much the same music they used in the opening credits of the first one. The theme that Danny Elfman did for Men in Black is, uh, I think, very, very entertaining, kind of spooky, sounds a bit like the Beetlejuice theme. A lot of Danny Elfman's music sort of blends together in a way. Uh, which isn't a criticism necessarily, it's just a Elfman's
1: music is fantastic. Uh, he's blameless yeah. as far as I'm concerned.
0: And uh, he does interesting things with that music theme in Men in Black 3, which we'll talk about next week. Um, uh, but you're right. It, I don't know. I mean, they're they're trying to establish that the villain is dangerous. She can blow up planets in her little spaceship, all this crap. But, but that's
1: well, a problem, because once yeah, you've established that she can, can apparently destroy worlds at whim... Right. nothing else she do seems that threatening.
0: And the MacGuffin here is the light of Zartha. Yep. Which, and um, it's quite the MacGuffin. I mean, God, I don't know. Yeah, the thing with like the Orion's Belt in the first, which was kind of cute, but it wasn't that central to the story. And this one, they try to make a big deal of it, but you don't get as much uh, investigation, I thought, in the actual process. You, you get a few clues here and there. You get a funny uh, cameo from David Cross again, this time playing a presumably different character.
1: In my mind, I always imagined that it was the same character, that he didn't actually die in the first film. He got freed and had his memory erased
0: again. That could be, but it's a very funny uh, take on the, you know, kind of geek living in his parents' basement, or I think in this one it's an attic. Um, watching all these, having all these crazy videotape collections off the TV.
1: Yeah, he, he he turns in a performance that is several notches above most of the other performances in this film.
0: And there's a very the one time I really laughed in this movie is he uh, he gets neuralized and uh, Will Smith tells David Cross and his girlfriend get married, you're gonna have a bunch of kids, but get yourself out of this basement. And he he walks away in a trance, and he's like. Hey, baby, we're going to leave this place. And he says, let me get the shovel first, implying that David Cross is going to kill his mother.
1: Uh, either that or get a job as a ditch digger.
0: It's also possible.
1: But yeah, that's kind of, that's kind of fucked up and a little bit too dark for this kind of movie. <laughs> and, it, and it does raise some questions. You know Who, who else has exhibited psychotic behavior after being neuralized in, in the Men in Black universe?
0: Did you like the return of certain characters from the first film, like uh, Tony Shalhoub as Jack Jeeves or Frank the Pug? Um, Tony Tony
1: Shalhoub, I did not because again, Tony Shalhoub is a great comic actor. Uh, I've all I've enjoyed him in everything he's ever done, except of course this, because when they bring back Tony Shalhoub's character Jeebs, the alien pawnbroker and and presumably alien tech fence, he it's it's just the laziest for this because this is the thing it's it's a lazy gag and it was a lazy gag in the 90s where you you have where for absolutely no reason he's wearing gold chains and speaking in street slang hmm I mean, that was hackneyed in the 90s, and yet here it is 2002, and it's showing up in a film as if it's supposed to be some great comic moment. That just smacks of lazy comedy writers.
0: The whole thing feels lazy and unnecessary. I mean, with the the whole concept of secret uh, government agency alien protectors on Earth... Well, they're not a government agency. Well... Uh, they're self-funded through uh, uh, patents on alien technology okay right 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 but whatever the whole concept with men in black you could do so much with it that'd be inventive and this is just content to stay in new york stay in the same time period go against have a lot of the other characters kind of do the same jokes and uh just be like the first one but worse it's like someone made a copy of a copy of a copy of a copy of a copy The whole thing is just obnoxious. One thing I did enjoy. uh, What else is obnoxious, Thrasher?
1: Rampant product placement all throughout this god danged film.
0: So we should mention the movie was, um, uh, you know, produced by Columbia Pictures, which was owned by Sony. Uh And uh, what's one of the product placements that sticks out to you?
1: Well, well, the the two absolute worst ones, the ones that just grabbed me out of the film and tried to shake me until coins fell out of my pockets. One, there's a Sprint store in MIB headquarters. Let me say this again. There's a Sprint store in MIB headquarters. <laughs> that would be like having a goddamn Starbucks in the room with the big board in Dr. Strangelove. Only it would be legitimate satire if that was in Dr. Strangelove.
0: And can I tell you something, Thrasher? Yeah. I can say, I have, um, I know from a very uh, extremely credible f- source that a, uh, a top government agency um, has a Starbucks coffee inside the headquarters. But that's uh, different. If, coffee if it is was something in the
1: lo- lobby area that would make a lot of sense, but we're talking in command and control. We're talking in operations central.
0: And, and also a coffee machine or a cafe or something would make sense because it's you're going to work for X amount of hours, you're going to get thirsty, you're going to get tired. You want something to, to boost your energy whether it's food or drink. But a phone you need to purchase phones constantly. Maybe they get, uh, they, may they get a Sprint discount. But yeah, well, yeah it's
1: like we got to stop this alien invasion. But first, I'd like a cell phone. There's just no, and it's just in the background of so many shots. Did you and notice then,
0: the cameo by uh, Nick Cannon? Pardon? Did you notice the cameo in the movie by Nick Cannon? Uh, no, I did not. Uh, so Nick Cannon is a comedian, um, who's now married to Mariah Carey. There's a big age gap between them. And, uh, hey, he has that's a, very, a gap
1: some people are willing to fill, man.
0: Uh, Nick Cannon was willing to fill it, apparently. Oh. And, um He has a small part as an MIB agent with, like, one or two lines, but he's pretty young when he was in this. So it's kind of amusing. Uh, you talk about product placement. Um, there's a celebrity uh, cameo by Michael Jackson that I Ugh. just find really obnoxious. Now, in the first film, wasn't he one of the faces on the screen where they said, oh, these guys yeah. are aliens? yeah.
1: He was one of the faces on the screen for an alien living undercover on Earth, and it was a cute, simple gag. However, Michael Jackson went through several scandals between when Men in Black One came out and when Men in Black Two came out.
0: Scandals and surgeries. Um, so as weird as he looked in Men in Black One, Men in Black Two, his nose had almost become a a very sharp uh, a triangle. I don't know. Like it just he had a beak. He had a. Yeah, that's excellent. He had a beak. He looked like the uh, the orange uh, Muppets that lose their head in a labyrinth. I don't know. He just <laughs> The Fieries. The Fieries, right. Um, that's an obscure reference. But yeah, it, he just looked really weird looking. And they use the clip where he's like, I'm Agent. Can I be Agent M? I'm Agent M. You can put
1: me in the new Men in Black movie, which put, raises put a lot a of horrible questions. So, wait, there's a Men in Black movie franchise in the Men in Black universe, and the Men in Black have some level of editorial control over that film?
0: I don't know. I mean, when that cameo came on, and I saw this in the theater, people just rolled their eyes, and people, some people actually groaned out loud.
1: Yeah, I did. I did. And, and cameo, I think the thing about cameos is usually they're brief, unless you've got a little bit of shtick to do. His cameo goes on way too long.
0: Now, if, if Michael Jackson would have been, like, a sidekick bad guy in this, that could have been interesting. You could have been something, like, weird. Like, what kind of special effect powers would an alien Michael Jackson have? Like, I don't uh, know. That could be something Watch Watch of...
1: Moonwalker and you'll see.
0: Or Captain EO, right? <laughs> yeah. I don't... Is that still a ride at Disney World or... Uh, they
1: brought it back when... He, they closed it down, After he but died. they brought it back yeah. uh, when he passed.
0: You know who directed Captain EO?
1: That was uh, Francis Ford Coppola, wasn't it?
0: Yes, that is surprising.
1: Yeah, with some backup help from Spielberg and Lucas.
0: And uh, one of the extras in that is comedian Doug Benson. Yeah He used to do extras in a lot of things. He's a Blade he, Runner, too, I believe. Uh, yeah, he's mentioned that on his show. It's pretty funny.
1: Oh, but actually, um, one last bit about the product placement. The other one, the absolute worst one. One of the coolest scenes in the original Men in Black so they kept talking about the red button in the car and why you should never press it. And at the end of the movie they press it and the, the and the, the LTD transforms into this really awesome jet powered supercar. And that's pretty damn cool. So in this new film, you know you have to top that. So this time you know you, you press the button and the LtD turns into into a, into a jet, which is again pretty cool. But how do they ruin it? When it transforms into the jet, the steering wheel turns into another control interface. What interface does it turn into? A silver PlayStation 2 controller, complete with the goddang Sony logo emblazoned on it. Uh, yeah. It's not like in Ghostbusters 2, where Egon has the control for the Statue of Liberty, is cobbled together from several parts, among them... Uh, a Nintendo controller. No, no, this is just the intact, complete PlayStation 2 controller. Somehow hardwired into this piece of uh, super technology.
0: Not to reveal too much about Men in Black 3 quite yet, but in Men in Black 3, uh, you know, which was also produced by Columbia, owned by Sony, um, there's a scene where they were playing a... Uh, Will Smith is by himself, and he is playing on his PlayStation 3 in his apartment but that at least contextually makes sense.
1: That's something that someone might actually do. What someone wouldn't do is build a car car that can transform into a jet and then decide that a PS2 controller would be a better control interface than a joystick, a piece of technology which has not really changed since the very first aircraft.
0: Right. It's um, not to mention on a joystick, you can get a a good, uh, you know, single or double handed grip on it to really fine tune where you're going. It's not as mushy as as an analog stick on a PlayStation or Xbox or whatever. Um but right, it's it's a weird choice. Uh and again the giant the the car gag is, is similar to what's in the first film. Um Did you like stuff at the beginning before the plot really took off where you have the big uh, alien worm in the subway eating stuff?
1: That was fun. Uh that was fun and kind of exciting. Although again, I, I touched on this a bit in the fir- when we discussed the first film, but it's even more pronounced because they, they the premise is that a group of aliens wanted to establish Earth as an apolitical zone uh, for a number of reasons, so people could take refuge, so that peace, accords could be hammered out and whatnot. And this brings up a, a big question: How, what the fuck, business does a giant alien superworm have in an apolitical zone?
0: Right, I mean it's a it's a big joke, you know. The big thing in Men in Black is that the aliens are kind of unexpected, kind of have personalities too, kind of like they pull over the alien with the pregnant uh, wife in the first one. And um, I, I think the special effects for that part look look okay by today's standards. It's it's really tough to kind of leave that go, especially with computer graphics. They age worse than practical stuff in uh, in some ways. I, I really didn't much care for the scene where Agent Zed, played by Rip Torn, does, like, karate kicks against uh, Serlina.
1: Yeah, that's a bit odd. He, he, like, Z- Zed never seemed like an overly physical character to me. He always, in my mind, seemed like a, a mastermind.
0: You know, we just got a comment on our Twitter from one of our listeners and a friend of yours, I believe. Oh? Beth Gilmer?
1: Ah, yes, my good old friend Beth Gilmer.
0: Now, do I know who she is in real life?
1: You you have never met her, but she's one of my okay. very good friends from uh, from Norfolk, Virginia, uh, we, we've known each other for, for quite some time. She's really awesome. Uh, she's, uh, you know, was part of Rocky Horror. She's been part of some of my earliest gaming groups, and she, she's just generally is a really super awesome person.
0: Was she also a SCAD alumni? No, she is not. Okay. I wasn't sure, but she mentioned she knew you, and I was like, oh, okay. Well, we've been talking about movies, uh, with her for a while on the Twitter feed, and I was asking people, what did I think about Men in Black 2? She said, I think it got a raw deal. The post office scene was meh. And the plot was just okay. Yeah. If the first had not been such a big deal, the sequel would have been fine, which I think is a fair point. The sequel, uh, the first movie, is such a big deal that you come in with such high expectations, especially when a sequel comes five years after the original. That sometimes that can color your thing, your uh, perception. But I still don't think Men in Black Two is a very good movie. Uh, We should move on to talking a bit about Rosario Dawson in this.
1: Okay, well, I will say one thing about that is I think... Go on. I think, like, the, the script was probably one or two drafts away from being pretty good. I think the film just needed... I I think this could have been a much better sequel if it had just had a little bit more time to percolate.
0: Right. And even another, like, even one single pass on it, it might have tightened things up a bit. I I totally agree. Uh, So the romantic interest, as we mentioned at the top of the show in this, was Rosario Dawson plays Laura Vasquez. And um, Rosario Dawson at this time was an up-and-comer. So far, as of this recording, in June 2012, um, her career never really took off, I think, the way it maybe should have. I think she's really talented, but... You know what I'm saying, Thrasher? Mm, Yeah. She was never in a big... Men in Black 2 was probably the most popular thing she was in. She was also in, like, Clerks 2... She did a really good job in Rent and Sin City. And uh, like I said, I liked her in Alexander, playing Roxana. But uh, when Man in Black 2 came out, she really wasn't that well-known. She was in the Josie and the Pussycats movies. And, Which is uh, pretty
1: good.
0: Yeah, and was also in the infamous, uh, scandalous independent film Kids. About teenage kids having sex and drugs. In the age of AIDS. In the 90s. Yeah, so. No, you're thinking of the 80s. This one took place in the 90s.
1: That was a different age.
0: It was not the age of Aquarius. I can tell you that much. Um,
1: <laughs> this is, We're going into a weird area right now.
0: It's because we don't want. You see, Men in Black One, we didn't want. We had little to talk about because it's, it's such so a good fun. movie and it's such a classic. Men in Black Two, it's so bad. I think we should be focusing on the movie a bit more. Uh, Rosario Dawson does as much as she can with the character, but she's really bland. She works at a uh, at a pizza shop, and um, her boss turns out to be an alien, and he gets assassinated by Serlina. So the men in black have to be on the scene. Will Smith gets a crush on her and he decides not to use the neuralizer on her after she sees all this alien stuff happening.
1: Well, you know, she, her own, the only real purpose she serves in this movie is to be dragged around by Smith and Jones. She, she's pretty much powerless, directionless, com, just has nothing but inertia throughout most of this movie. And i must say, I don't buy that he's not willing to neuralize her.
0: I think that he finds someone he cares for so much he doesn't want to neuralize him uh, thematically is a really interesting point. But But not
1: one that they really take anywhere.
0: No, 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 they don't. It's not like he... um... Yeah, there's not many moments where these characters connect and in any sort of romantic uh, chemistry in a film you need to have something where you can relate to the characters or at least you can see some sort of sparks fly. And uh, you just don't see it here, uh, especially at the end of the film, where ironically her character becomes very important. For the most part, she's kind of kept in protection, in protective custody and men in black headquarters by the worm aliens, who uh, I think were very funny that smoke uh, cigarettes and drink vodka and all this stuff.
1: Because, C- of course, you know, if you've if if you've got a, a, a person who's being t- t- uh, stalked by alien gangsters, You want to put them into custody of not trained agents, but by some jackasses who hang around your break rooms drinking all your coffee.
0: Yeah, so you hobble the character that way. They also hobble the character of Frank the Pug. You have, uh, I think, some of the funniest scenes in the movie where Frank the Pug is a partner with um, Will Smith and Tommy Lee Jones. And then when this alien stuff is going on, he's trapped in a room in the Men in Black headquarters and can't really do anything except sniff around and say, like, ah, this is worse than my butt or whatever he says. I don't think he says a line quite that bad, but it's a lot of butt humor, a lot of humping humor. I don't know. He seems yeah, to who let humor the dogs doesn't out.
1: Really work.
0: No, it's not quite as bad as the uh, the robot dog in Transformers Two: Revenge of the Fallen that humps uh, Megan Fox's leg for for no really good reason.
1: Yeah, and then says, "Say my name." Uh, that's another. S- By the way, uh, Matt, when we do that series. Yes. If we ever do the Transformers series, we should. prepare for every word out of my mouth to be fuck.
0: Okay. Uh, did he hear, speaking of Transformers for a minute, did you he hear they were doing a, uh, Michael Bay is going to direct Transformers 4, like he did I with the first three, he is. but he plans to not direct any more after that, and he says um, uh, Transformers 4 will have an all-new cast and redesigns of a lot of the robots, which I think that's a, that's a good thing, um...
1: You know, be an even better thing, not making it.
0: I like the first one, the first live-action one, and the I like the cartoon movie can too. The first be fun, but yeah, uh,
1: but that's it. That's well, all it we, can we, be.
0: Why don't we transform our discussion back to Men in Black Two? Okay. <coughs> Star Scream, you idiot! Now that doesn't even sound like the Jesus!
1: Star Scream, you idiot! That would be uh, more like the Frank Welker Megatron voice.
0: Yeah. This is Optimus Prime. <laughs> <laughs> that doesn't sound like me either.
1: <laughs> That's a kind of James Earl Jones.
0: Yeah, I should never do impersonations. It's like only when I'm doing inadvertent things, like my Alan Rickman. Hey, Hello hey, Harry Potter. Do,
1: impersonate Tommy Lee Jones from uh, Men in Black 2.
0: Okay, I'll, I'll do the scene with um, Laura. Uh, with uh, uh, Sorry, what's your name? Her character is named Laura. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Rosario Dawson, that drives me crazy. Okay. When you get sad, it always seems to rain. Kay. Lots of people get sad when it rains. It rains because you're sad, baby. That's sound, awful. Sounds like a like a like a half baked Elvis. It's your not even impression. As bad as your
1: impression is, it's yes. still better than the line you're quoting.
0: Is there an impression I can do that's okay? I think it can do a good Yoda. I can do Jar Jar Binks, and that's about it. And uh. Pop. Can you He's do the worm worms. guys? Hey! I, 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 <laughs> no. <laughs> hey, we'll play Twister! Ah, yeah. Okay. Um, so, speaking of the worm guys, you have a, a new group of aliens introduced in this that live in a locker in Grand Central Station Oh. that look like Ewoks that worship um, a, a glowing uh, Gizmodo. Uh, isn't it a
1: watch? Yeah, it's a watch. Yeah, they, they worship a light-up watch.
0: It's one of the many clues Tommy Lee Jones places everywhere to remind him of something he blocked in his mind.
1: You know, you know what? I don't think he did leave clues for himself like everyone thought. I think that they were just picking up coincidental items until the movie had to end, and they stumbled upon the climax. I don't think there's any trail they're following at
0: all. Really? You think it's just... And I mean, it is an excuse to pad out the movie. This movie doesn't have much momentum as far as the plot goes. In the first one, you had the literal countdown where if we don't do it in this amount of time, the world's going to blow up. And you have a little bit of this here, I guess, with, uh, I don't know, with if she finds the light. But it's never, the importance of the light of Zartha is never explained, and the payoff is fairly disappointing in mm-hmm. that you realize the light of Zartha is Rosario Dawson herself, right?
1: Yeah, which I had figured out pretty damn early.
0: But and, and the be
1: thing is, like because yeah. like, in the first because we talked about in the first film, it's not too hard to figure out the whole the galaxy is on Orion's belt mystery. But that's okay because they' it's it sort of it's it's a classic way of constructing a mysterious phrase that needs to be unraveled. as we said, Sherlock Holmes and the speckled band. but in this in this film, it's just they're looking for a lot of the light of Zartha. oh, here's a woman. Yeah, it'll turn out to be her. Hmm. It just—it's Again, it seems, it, it seems lazy.
0: And speaking of criticism with that character, there's a very interesting uh, quote from the book Inside Men in Black 2 uh, from the director Barry Sonnenfeld. He is saying there was a lot of interference with the producers of the film wanting to focus on the love story between Will Smith and Rosario Dawson's character. And this is what director of Men in Black 2 uh, has to say about this. Uh, I learned in Wild Wild West that audiences do not want to see Will Smith as a straight man. And until Tommy Lee Jones comes back into the movie, by definition, Will Smith is the straight man. Huh. Which...
1: I can see where he's coming from with that.
0: Yeah, I mean, Will Smith almost always plays, except in something like Ali, even in Ali a bit. You know, he's a a character with a lot of swagger, a lot of confidence. He's kind of goofy. He always has a smart-ass but family-friendly quip at hand. And when he's kind of tired and bitter at the start of this movie... It's it's not fun, and but even when Will Smith or uh, when Tommy Lee Jones comes back, and Will Smith has to be his goofy self, he seems a bit too old for this shit to uh, take a line from *Lethal Weapon*.
1: Oh yeah,
0: and that's not something. You, I mean, people age; you can't really help that. But
1: well, if you're not in the Illuminati, you can't help it. But well, for Tom those Cruise of us, does. Uh,
0: Tom Cruise doesn't really seem to age. I don't know. Tommy Lee Jones doesn't seem to age that much in all three of the Men in Black movies.
1: He's always been that old.
0: Feels like it. Uh, So, yeah, but I I think that point from the director in the Making of Men in Black 2 book is is well said. That being said, I don't know, Will Smith isn't very fun in the second half of the film either (laughs) after Tommy Lee Jones comes in. It, It seems like he's trying too hard. Well, I think
1: he knows how shallow the material he has to work with is. Like, he's really struggling to try to bring some extra oomph to it, but he just has no foundation to work from. Like, you know, after they get flushed down the giant toilet, uh, Will Smith has this really long, clearly improvised run uh, where he's trying to sort of really justify what just happened to Tommy Lee Jones. And it goes on and on, and his character gets more and more desperate. But I think that's actually Will Smith being more and more desperate Trying to bring some sort of comedy to that scene.
0: I saw a recent interview with Will Smith talking about Men in Black 3, which we talk about next week on the sequel cast, and you can check out all our episodes at sequelcast.com. Uh, in this interview for, Will, for Men in Black 3, Will Smith admitted that nobody was happy with Men in Black 2, but he did not give any specific details as to why. Um, I think you know it was a lot of push and pull with what Tommy Lee Jones wanted with his character, yeah. what Will Smith wanted with his character, and nobody really met. And when you try and meet in the middle between two really opposing views, um, you get a very haphazard film. Um, what did you think about the the very end of Men in Black Two? It kind of uh, does the same actually, as the first film, right? He looks actually- in the locker.
1: Can we talk about the Can we talk about the the little aliens in the storage locker? For go for, for it. A sure. Moment? I'm sorry yep. I interrupted you. Yeah. So we got these little aliens in the in the storage locker, and they apparently seem to worship Tommy Lee Jones' character, who apparently put them there and who, you know, gave them the little things that they've made their storage locker civilization out of. And it's just that scene by itself, could have made a cute little short film. but And that scene probably does have some of the best comedy in this movie. But by the time it shows up, any goodwill you have about this movie is completely squandered. So it just starts to anger you when now something kind of funny starts to happen. But like, you know, there's like, you know, jokes about how there's like a, uh, there's like a, you know, they talk about like the sacred laws and this Moses alien comes down with like notes uh, and and you know there's a thing about and, and that's where they find that's where they find the ticket or the the card that sends them to the video store and like the the things on the video card the video store card are like the sacred laws including a thing about like adult entertainment in the back or whatever and then of course a huge chunk of aliens go running into a like a triple X theater which seems kind of weird for presumably a family action comedy I don't know that 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 film just kept Really strat riding the line between really funny and clever and just infuriating in the context of the film.
0: We're talking about those aliens. Uh, if you don't mind, before we talk about the real ending of the movie, the uh, the DVD and the Blu ray has a alternate ending that was originally shot for the film, mm-hmm. um, that involves those aliens. And at the end of this one, you know, Will Smith at, at the end of both versions, or both uh, endings. You get the same thing with them finishing off Serlina, and then Will Smith says, Oh, well, I'm going to take, in the original ending, uh, which is a deleted scene on the DVD, Will Smith says, I'm going I'm to have a well-deserved break. And uh, they said, you know, you did so good, we're going to send you an all-expense-paid vacation. They put him, Will Smith, in, in a UFO that looks kind of weird. He has to lay on his back to fit in the UFO, and you can see his face poking out of it. And you get a big shot, CG shot, and the UFO going all through space. Looks very expensive. And then he lands on the planet. When he gets out of the planet, it turns out he is inside the locker with those aliens. And um, Tommy Lee Jones and uh, Rip Torn slam the door on him, and it ends. That seems weird. Yes
1: like I know they keep doing jokes about the big versus the small and they, and they and they and they have like a little gag based on that at the end of the first film but that seems really weird to go through the trouble of putting him in a UFO just to shrink him and put him into a storage locker that almost seems like a punishment in this quarter, on the Greenlit Podcast Network, Chris Sibs and Matt Wilson, and in this quarter, VHS oddities, confusing animation, and modern not-so-classics, plus snacks. Movie fighters. We watch movies and beat them up. The award-winning Go Nintendo podcast covers the latest Nintendo news while also diving into what's hot in pop culture, music trivia, hands-on impressions, and so much more. Hopefully we can make you laugh, too. You'll find new episodes of the Go Nintendo podcast on the Greenlit Podcast Network every single week.
0: Right. But then what do you think of the the actual ending to the real film itself is just a repeat of what they did in the first one?
1: Barely. Well, I mean, yeah, they, they found another hidden spaceship. Uh, Okay. The, the ending of this film was yet another victim of 9-11. Um, and I know lots of people feel lots of different ways about 9-11, uh, but I cannot stand what it did to, to film. Uh, the right, right off the bat supposedly the climax of this film was supposed to take place with the, the alien spacecraft being hidden on top of the World Trade Centers. So, of course, they couldn't, they couldn't do that, and that's completely understandable. They just found another high-rise. But then, you know, all this stuff happens with trying to get the spaceship and Serlina and all this stuff and flying around, and finally, you know, they, they, blow, up, they blow up Serlina in the air, but instead of just blowing up, it turns into a goddamn 4th of July fireworks display. And suddenly, like, they try to slap on this patriotic veneer that just does not work. All it does is remind me of the tragedy and remind me of why I come to escapist fantasy film to begin with.
0: Yeah. It really takes you out of the moment.
1: You know, it's it's like in Spider-Man, where for... Where you know all of a sudden the people of New York start waving flags and saying, "You mess with one of us, you mess with all of us." You're you're pulling, you're you're taking me out of the delightful fantasy of the film and rubbing my face in a very difficult, very complex reality, and I almost feel ins, and I almost feel insulted that you're trying to deal with something so complex in such a ham-fisted, hackneyed way.
0: Hmm. Yeah, it doesn't work. The movie doesn't end on a high note, except you realize, oh, the movie's over. I can stop watching this. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I I liked a few of the scenes with Frank the Pug in Men in Black 2. I I liked uh, Patrick Warburton at the beginning. I would have been fine if he would have been the partner the whole time instead of Tommy Lee Jones. Yeah, if Tommy Lee Jones really didn't want to do it. Um, I'd say I would not recommend Men in Black 2. Even if you like the first one, it's, it's okay. It's maybe not quite as bad as you remember, but... Um,
1: yeah, it's... it's no, it's, it's, as, it's as bad as you remember, if not worse. It's a terrible be, film.
0: Before we play pitch a pitch of sequel, what did you think about the Will Smith song for this film? Nod um, your head, not, Black Suits Coming. Not very inspired. I like that it has trumpets and guitar, and it's not, <laughs> it's not as danceable a number as the original Men in Black. It doesn't have well, as catchy of a hook. But it's well, trying to sound different. It's not like "Here Come the Man in Black, Two Galaxy Defenders Again." again. <laughs> <laughs> well,
1: you you say trumpets and guitars. I say overproduced.
0: It is a bit busy, isn't it?
1: Yeah, especially with that with that like was it like DJ K
0: What's that? I don't know what that is.
1: There's like a CGI alien DJ called Knox that is in the video that they keep making reference to. Oh,
0: I'll have to put the video on our uh, Facebook page at facebook.com/sequelcast. Um, so it's safe to say we both do not recommend Men in Black Two, right?
1: No, no, absolutely now, not.
0: Even if you're a huge fan of the first one and the first one's one of your favorites, and you got uh, Men in Black tattooed on your nipple. recommend.
1: yeah this is not this film is not worth it it is not worth it is this film is not worth the money you would pay for a ticket it is not worth the rental fee it is not worth a net netflix subscription it is not worth the time bandwidth and hard disk space it would take to pirate it
0: all right um so next week on sequel cast we're talking about men in black 3 but before that we're going to play a few of our games on the show uh, let's let's start with pitch a sequel in which we pretend that any sequel after uh, the movie we're talking about, Men in Black 2, did not exist. So we get to pitch our own idea for a Men in Black 3, pretending that Men in Black 3 never existed, only Men in Black 1 and 2 did. Oh, yeah. I will start, I think, with Men in Black 2, you, uh, with it being a, a disappointment for a lot of audiences despite making a lot of money, you, with Men in Black 3, I think a wise thing to do would be is um, make it try to be flip-flop the tone instead of making it funny, make it really, really gritty and dark to kind of be with current movies. You would have um, Will Smith would get like assassinated and Tommy Lee really? Jones is an old man on his own. The whole Men in Black agency is, uh, is taken out and Tommy Lee Jones is the last man in black. In fact, it would be called Man in Black instead of a men in black. And this old man, uh, with a limited supply of gun and limited supply of ammo, has to just sort of survive. It'd be shot in a style kind of like District 9, uh, a lot of handheld stuff, and very gritty, and it's just a tale of survival. One man versus a lot of aliens in New York, a lot of paranoia. I think it would disappoint audiences even more, I think, with that tonal shift, but at least it'd be something different. What's your uh, pitch for Men in Black 3?
1: Okay, so my pitch for Men in Black 3 is that it would turn out that Agent L didn't actually go back to her former life. She undertook a mission so dangerous and so deep cover that she had to fake going back to her normal life. So she's actually been a badass solo MIB agent this whole time. And what she did is she infiltrated Area 51. And the, the whole deal is... It turns it turns out that uh, Majestic Twelve, a secret uh, co- a secret criminal syndicate that smuggles alien technology to Earth, has gotten hold of like some important like a- alien alien diplomats, alien scientists, who they're holding hostage. And of course, the rest of the galaxy doesn't like this. Uh, so Agent L returns to MIB headquarters and needs them to help her lead an assault on Area Fifty One to get this alien scientist freed. So. However, Majestic Twelve knows this, so Majestic Twelve, using its own secret agents in MIB headquarters, bombs the headquarters. So the MIB are thrown into chaos. So it's up to Agents J, Agents K, Agent L, and Frank the Pug to take the L T D and drive cross country to get to Area 51 and and free this alien. And, you know, you get a lot of you know, and the whole time they're being pursued by Majestic Twelve agents who are just who are just Everything the Men in Black do, they are the opposite. They they uh, they abuse alien technology. They don't just neuralize people; they implant false memories, and, which often fuck up people's lives or lead to all the brain damage that uh, that uh, Will Smith was worried about in the first film. And it all ends in this thrilling and it all ends in this thrilling climax where it's a dogfight between a high tech UFO. And a, stolen, uh, and a stolen experimental aircraft from the hangars of Area 51 over the Nevada desert.
0: Hmm. Pretty cool. Oh, yeah. Um, so, yeah, those are some ideas. And if you want to see, uh, listen to past episodes where we have done that, pitch a sequel game, uh, look us up on iTunes and leave us a review, please, please, please. Or, uh, you know, go to sequelcast.com. Episodes are on there as well. Uh, so our last segment, What You're Watching, in which we talk about a piece of media, whether it be a video game, film, book, whatever, that we've been looking at uh, in the past uh, week or two. It'd be a few weeks at this point, I guess. Um, so, Thrasher, what you been watching?
1: Well, I haven't been watching too much because I recently did had to do double duty uh, doing event coordination and repping for Skirmisher Publisher LLC at both uh, Comic Palooza in uh, in Texas and at the Origins Game Fair in Columbus, Ohio. They were both very successful. I'm glad to be back, but I frankly did not have any time to watch television or movies. What I did have some time to do though was read, and what I've been reading. Is Harlan Ellison's original teleplay for the classic Star Trek episode "The City on the Edge of Forever." Uh, it's an edition that was published by, uh, that was published under the Borealis imprint, which was an imprint, interestingly enough, of the White Wolf Game Studios. It came out, uh, I think, in '95, '96, and it's got all the different versions of the script. It's got all three drafts of the script he wrote. It's got his original pitch. It's got afterwards by. Uh, Several important people from Star Trek's history, D.C. Fontana, uh, DeForest Kelly, of course, before he passed, Leonard Nimoy, Walter Koenig, George Takei. George Takei. Uh, and it also has an expanded, uh, an expanded uh, just about 80-page introductory essay of... Uh, About the script and about uh, Ellison's history with Star Trek and his history with Gene Roddenberry. That's that's fascinating and hilarious and full of detail, uh, but also a bit ranty, as Ellison can sometimes be.
0: Now, is there a lot of difference between the script and what ended up in that episode? Because that episode is regarded as one of the best episodes of the original series of Star Trek.
1: Yes, and in fact that's one of the sections in here. Like TV Guide did a poll of like the 100 greatest TV moments. It was either greatest moments or greatest episodes, but I believe City on the Edge of Forever was in the top 5. But the uh it is different in a number of, uh, uh, marked, uh, marked ways. In the original version, it, it wasn't, uh, just the Guardian of Forever. There was actually a whole race of aliens called the Guardians of Forever that protected a time machine. And in the original version, uh... Doctor McCoy didn't accidentally inject himself with the drug that gave him a psychotic episode. The Starfleet uh, crew member who trumped through the portal and altered history was in fact a Starfleet officer who had been secretly using the Enterprise to smuggle drugs. These narcotics called uh, called the Jewels of Sound, and it was actually originally supposed to open with a court martial of this character but then the character escapes and jumps through the portal while other people are investigating the time portal while other people are investigating it.
0: Hmm.
1: Um. Oh, well, one thing that's also interesting is that is that the script was written before Star Trek had ever aired so there's lots of sort of established parts of Star Trek that hadn't been fully formed yet. So for instance, uh, Scotty in the early drafts of the script Scotty doesn't have a name. He's simply referred to as the Scotsman. Uh, and uh, the transporter The transporter doesn't get mentioned till I think, the second draft. Until then, it's either called the transport or the translator. And there's a little footnote about how in early scripts, it was simply referred to as the translator.
0: Hmm. I've been uh, reading a book myself recently. Uh, you know, I've been seeing a lot of the trailers for the uh, Dark Knight Rises, the... Mm-hmm third Chris Nolan Batman film uh, starring Christian Bale coming out and I've been reading a book called Improving the Foundations Batman Begins from Comic to Screen by Julian Darius and it's pretty interesting he kind of looks at the history of the Batman comic specifically how Batman's origin story has been told with the pictures from the comics and discussion of it and how it's changed over the years and what they've incorporated from that and like what Raz al Ghul and all the uh, Henry Ducard and all these things are like in the comics, cool. but, um, and how it incorporates in the movie and it goes by the movie, literally scene by scene, pointing out what stuff was behind what comics. And the author Julian Darius, uh, as far as I know, was not someone that worked in the movie. This is an unauthorized book, but it has so much detail. It's, uh, it's really pretty impressive. It's 264 pages worth of detail. Just focusing on one movie and how it relates to the source material. Um, I think it's a pretty interesting read, especially for someone like me that hasn't read a whole bunch of uh, Batman comics. Say, uh, let's talk about one more thing, piece, and then I think we can close things out. What is something else you've been watching?
1: Oh, actually, uh, I've started uh, on the flight uh, back from uh, Texas. I started reading uh, Dashiell Hammett's *The Maltese Falcon*, and I've got to say, it is a fantastic novel. It is,
0: hmm.
1: it is, it's just full of uh, threats and innuendo and mystery and intrigue and, and smoldering sensuality. It is, it is an amazing novel. Like I, I loved *The Thin Man*, and I think I may end up liking this book even more. It's, it is a. It's a tremendous novel.
0: Pretty cool. Uh, I recently um, just finished the video game. Uh, I finished a few video games. I guess I'll go through those really quickly. Diablo 3 I finished on the PC, and I finished Mass Effect 3 uh, on the Xbox 360. I am not going to spoil anything, don't worry, but... Um, Diablo 3 I thought it's fun it was pretty fun it's the only Diablo game I've ever beaten and uh although I wish I would have played through it with a different class in Diablo you kind of pick different um classes like what kind of skills your guy has mm-hmm. and I picked the witch doctor and uh cool. doing him as a solo character is like trying to solo uh, World of Warcraft as a as like a priest mm-hmm. And that it's mainly a support class. There's not a lot of... You don't do a lot of high uh, DPS. You don't do a lot of damage to enemies. And it made it very uh, laborious at times. But I wish I would have known more about the classes, I think, and done a bit more research before I picked on one to go through the game with. Um, But I think I might play through again as a different class. I'm not sure. I've actually started a a blog uh, where I talk about playing through all three Diablo games, and I'm just going through the first one right now. Quest by cool. Quest. Uh, it's called Diablo Me at <laughs> Um so, Dirty man. Yeah. And Mass Effect 3, I beat... Uh, gee, those are all three pretty good games. I think overall the first one perhaps had the best story, and maybe the second one had the best gameplay. The third one still has a lot of interesting things. The big weakness that I have uh, with it, which is are twofold without really spoiling anything um the you could have used more people to pick from on your team as you go on missions because you collect a lot of characters through the the first two games and you don't necessarily get to directly use all of them and um it had been so long since i've played mass effect one and two that by the time mass effect three starts i was really lost and I had played and completed both those games. Um, but they are pretty dense. So A lot of stuff going on.
1: So did you have any kind of problem with the ending you got?
0: Do we want to talk about the ending? Jeez, uh, I don't no, know. No, not Have you beat it?
1: I mean, I just, I, I just want to know generally... Have you, beat, have
0: you beat the game, Thrasher? Not yet. All I want to okay. know from
1: you, generally speaking, is if you were yes. pleased with the climax.
0: Uh, okay, so the ending of Mass Effect 3 is really controversial... Uh it made a lot of internet people really pissed off um the the ending is very would i would it be a spoiler if I compared it to the ending of another movie do you think oh uh, no no it's would a, you have like a problem with that okay it reminds me of the ending to uh the third matrix movie matrix revolutions huh and um it's a very out-there ending, very kind of a ballsy ending, and people were upset with it in that it didn't lift a lot of questions unanswered. And as part of a response to it, uh, BioWare, the company that made the game, said they're going to be releasing a free DLC that's kind of like an expanded, uh, more fleshed-out epilogue to the ending.
1: That might not be free anymore. Uh, the last time I heard, there was going to be a fee for it.
0: You know, it, they haven't even said when it's coming out. They announced that they were going to do it a long time ago. So, um, I mean, it's an ending that gets people talking, and you can't say that about a lot of video game endings. Uh, but that's or, but that's
1: not necessarily good if the talking is hateful.
0: Well, you know, you're, you'll have to. You're pretty far in the game, Thrasher. It's a pretty big game. Well, actually, I have
1: not started it because I have too many writing commitments this summer. Mm. I honestly don't think I'm going to get a chance to just sit down and play it until August.
0: Uh, okay, well, well, when you do, uh, I'd like to hear your thoughts on the ending.
1: Oh, you—you you will. The only reason I bring it up is because yeah. uh, uh, my 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 group, Kettlefish Productions, we organize uh, special gaming events at conventions across the country. At Origins, we always challenge people, our players, to come up with special requests or special challenges for us to do next year. And one of and one of the challenges we got. Was to do a Mass Effect three LARP, but with a good ending, and that was seconded by five other people in the room. Uh, so we may end up doing that.
0: Yeah, and there's a lot of potential characters you could have people play as in those uh, oh, in that game. I would think, and uh, I guess one last sad thing to end the show on is uh, today, June sixth, twenty twelve. Um. The length of my penis shrunk by half an inch. No, um, Ray Bradbury died. Uh, he's, I shouldn't be laughing. Um, I'm laughing at my own bad joke. He's a marvelous
1: man. Yes,
0: uh, a science fiction author, screenwriter, poet, all of these things. He, um, lived to be 90 or 91 years old. Certainly a big life. And, uh. There's been some movies, you know, based off his stuff. Fahrenheit 451.
1: Yeah, I I will go so far as to say he is probably the tw- he is probably the 20th century's greatest fantasist.
0: Uh, what do you mean by fantasist?
1: It's, it's a, a writer, a writer of the astounding and the whimsical and the fantastic.
0: Ah, okay. So better than Asimov.
1: Well, Asimov, I don't consider a fantasist. Hmm. Yeah, everything Asimov does has some sort of grounding in in science or philosophy or uh, or history. But uh, but Bradbury's work, it was like his his works were like the best dreams. And I'm, tr- I'm trying not to sound too pretentious, but that really is how I feel. Uh, re- reading his work, it is it is like it is like just consuming delicious spoonfuls of emotion.
0: Yeah, uh, director Steven Spielberg uh, today came out with a statement saying that Ray Bradbury was his muse for the better part of my sci-fi career. Mm -hmm. On the world of science fiction and fantasy and imagination, he is immortal. Um, That's pretty well said. Uh, I didn't realize this, but there was an actual TV series called Ray Bradbury Theater. Yes, it was pretty good. Was it all based on his short stories and stuff, or just was sort of like he hosted it, and it was like Twilight Zone kind oh, of...
1: Oh, he he hosted it, but it was all based on his short stories, and oh, he interesting. has a tremendous volume of uh, short stories.
0: Yeah, there, there's tons of collection of those all over the place. Um... Uh,
1: I mean, he he's, he's Bradbury Bradbury lived his life in a way that I I want to live, where every every day is Halloween.
0: Yeah. I was, read a collection of his essays. It was uh, nonfiction. In fact, you can get Ray Bradbury Theater, the complete series, on a DVD from Amazon.com for ten dollars. Hmm. It's a pretty. It's a good goodbye. deal. One thousand five hundred seventy one minutes worth. Sixty-five episodes. It's a lot. Um, what was I saying? I'm sorry, I lost myself.
1: You you were gonna talk about? Um, I think you were gonna, uh, you are either gonna talk about the impact of his work or uh, oh, oh right, the essays I'm sorry. Yes,
0: yeah, so I was I was reading a collection of his essays, and he talks about the moment that he decided to become a writer full time. Is he was supporting his family doing a kind of nine to five job. He had a wife, he had a kid at the time, or maybe a kid was on the way and we really had to start earning serious money. And, uh, one month he he was selling short stories here and there. And then one month he showed enough short stories where he made more money that month doing the, the the writing than from his day job. And that's the day he quit his day job. And, um, I think that's a really interesting, uh, inspiring story. That's I've
1: tried to model my career.
0: Wow. How about that? And uh, he also was the screenwriter on the uh, Moby Dick film from the 60s or 70s, directed by John Huston. Wait, no, maybe it wasn't John Huston. Let me look this up so I can have this correct. <laughs> well, I believe he also... Sorry, came, 1956. Believe- directed by John Huston. Yeah. Hmm. What was that? You can say one last thing, then we'll...
1: Oh, no, I, be- I believe he wrote one of the drafts of the Little Nemo animated movie. Oh, he also did uh, The Amazing Ice Cream Suit.
0: With uh, Edward James Olmos.
1: Yeah, he he just... he The man's got an amazing career. His, his his Both his work and his life are well worth looking into. I've got a wonderful biography of his uh called the Ray Bradbury Chronicles and I that I actually am going through as all this happens and it's it's been a good read uh and I I'm glad that we're talk I am glad that we're talking about an author that we love and respect now rather than men in black too.
0: Yeah, I think it's a good point to end the show. Uh tune in next week where we will talk about Men in Black 3. For we'll miss mission Ray Bradbury We'll miss your Ray Bradbury. Well will uh,
1: Until that day when we all drink the dandelion wine.
0: Very good. Um, for the sequel cast, this is Mad. And this is Thrasher. Saying...
1: Flush me, Jay! Flush me!
0: Nod your head. Black suit's coming. <laughs> okay. Uh. Right. I'm stopping the... Who let the dogs out? Who let the dogs out? Who out? (laughs) Who let the dogs out? What?